0: Greetings and salutations. This is Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth-telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today's truth. Native American communities are being devastated by the COVID-19 pandemic, and the toll isn't just on health, but also on culture, as language, customs, and oral history is perishing along with our elders. My guest today is New York Times journalist Jack Healy who has been reporting on this experience in Indian country, including the steps that natives are taking to counteract the crisis. Jack is a national correspondent for the Times who focuses on life outside America's city limit signs. And I'll note another point in his bio. He adopted a street cat from Baghdad and that cat contributed some meowing to this interview that you may or may not be able to hear. And I rather enjoyed it. Let's get to it. My conversation with Jack Healy. All right, Jack Healy, how did you get turned on to the story, and where did it take you, either physically or virtually?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the start of it was was really rooted um, months ago um, when the pandemic crashed into uh, the Navajo Nation. and, you know, that, the Navajo Nation is the largest um, American Indian reservation in the country. And, um, you know, it was just really, really hit hard in the early months of the pandemic. Um, and so what we started to see, n- not just there, but in um, in Native American communities across the country, was that um, as the virus kind of took hold um elders started to die. And I started to see um, reports on social media and from uh, contacts I know of people losing grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles. And, um, you know, it just sort of reached this kind of critical mass um, and just grew into this real crisis. And so that's when um, I heard about the Taken Alive family and in the standing rock reservation up in north dakota um and the, the, the taken alives are this very prominent family up at standing rock um and standing rock people might remember the name it uh became pretty famous in 2016 when um activists and tribal members um Protested to block an oil pipeline, and it sort of became synonymous with this new uh, Native American, newly reinvigorated uh, Native American rights movement um, for tribal sovereignty and environmental justice. Um, and you know, I, I went up there to cover the protests back then, and uh, and so it has a real sort of special and close place, um, you know, in my heart. And so um, when I heard about the Taken Alive family, um, I, I scrambled up there with a photographer to to chronicle um, the, the loss of uh, basically like four elders from this one family. Um, and that's where the story kind of began for us.
0: I was really struck by a, a quote uh, in your piece, which was uh, by Jason Salzman um, of the Muscogee Nation in Eastern Oklahoma, when he said, quote, it's like we're having a cultural book burning. What did he mean by that?
1: What he meant was that for a lot of Native American communities and families, um, cultural knowledge and sort of wisdom isn't necessarily just encoded in uh, in books. Uh, that that elders have this like incredibly important place in society, not just because they are cherished grandparents and parents um but because they're the people who are um you know the transmission sources of cultural wisdom um they're the people who uh teach younger generations to speak muskogee or to speak navajo or just to, to speak native languages that have really been um kind of threatened and have have um in some cases that uh we you know the United States tried to, you know, assimilate out of existence and tried to basically erase, uh, you know, for centuries. Um, you know, these grandparents are the ones who teach uh, about ceremonies, um, you know, about traditional medicines, about, you know, just sort of you know, creation stories and and the knowledge that they have and and especially the ways of of telling these these stories and the ways of passing down this knowledge um you know sitting together um you know talking and, and hearing these stories from grandparents you know, they're part of this oral tradition that that can't be replicated um by books and or when these people get sick and when they're wiped out by this plague it just like i mean it's, it's it really creates this this concern about like what's our future how are we going to you know, passed on this knowledge, what are we losing? Um, when this entire generation, you know, is just kind of like wiped away um, in a matter of months. So that's what Jason was talking about. And two of Jason's grandparents actually got really sick. Um, and they, they survived. But um, when you talk to people who are parts of Native communities, you know, a lot of them have been hit so hard. I mean, the they can just name multiple family members, multiple elders, and and sort of like older generation tribal leaders who who they've lost, and so there's been like this effort to to protect them as a means of like preserving, you know these these sources of knowledge.
0: You found all these anecdotes of people who have um, lost multiple family members. Uh, how do you uh, empirically get your arms around how many elders have been affected.
1: Yeah, I mean that's really hard. Um and it was it was really difficult in this story because I mean it, it it kind of the short answer is there's no good national number. Um I mean the Navajo nation, uh you know by virtue of being you know the largest in the country and and also um you know, one of the best in terms of transmission um, and updates on data, they, they've got good numbers that have tracked and broken down um, coronavirus deaths by by age category, um, you know, for people on the reservation and their citizens. Um, and those numbers show that about 60 to 65% or so of the deaths of people have been over the age of 60. Um, but once you, once you get outside of like the political borders of a reservation, it, it can get really difficult because for for a number of reasons, um, like seventy percent of um, Native Americans actually don't live um, in sort of like rural settings. They they live in urban areas, um, and that is that that can make counting. Deaths or counting cases difficult for a number of reasons. One is that uh, Native Americans are often misclassified um, when it comes to, you know, being counted by hospitals or health systems or or coroner's offices. Um, they're misconstrued as white or Hispanic or Asian, um, or you know, their tribal identities, um, tribal statuses aren't taken into account, and so. Um, This like this poses has posed a problem for all sorts of issues over the years. Whether it's like counting victims of crime or trafficking, or um, you know census level representation issues, Um, and now it's a big problem with coronavirus. And so, like this sort of like decades of misclassification and miscounting mean that we don't really have a good answer on on how many tribal elders have died or have gotten sick. So it's uh. It's, it's real tough.
0: You know, my own father who's native American was in the hospital recently and I went to visit him and, Oh, where's this? Uh, this is in Denver. Oh, okay. Uh,
1: is, it, is he, is he, I'm sorry. Is he, um, like from a, like a Colorado tribe, like Northern Arapaho or North, North no, he's from,
0: um, uh, we're from the Pocagin band of Potawatomi Indians. Oh, okay. And, um, his nurse, uh, happened to be Navajo. Oh, okay. And, uh, they got into a conversation um, about, uh, COVID-19 and she, she kind of leaned in and, uh, in kind of a whispered tone said, you know, I think they're trying to kill us all. And, um, I, 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 noticed in your piece that you, you touch on this, this element of, uh, mistrust in government. How does that play into all of this?
1: Oh my gosh. That is your dad. Okay. By the way, or is, yeah. You- yeah. No, he's, he's, he's out. Okay, okay, that's good. Um uh well my best to him. I I I hope he's doing okay. Um th- that is like such yeah, I mean as as you know like the the legacy of kind of mistrust and cultural genocide. It, I mean it stretches back, you know, to the first time settlers like put boots on this continent. Um, you know, I mean through eras of smallpox blankets and genocide uh, physical and cultural and medical experiments that were conducted on Native Americans without their their knowledge or consent, forced sterilizations. Um, I mean a lot of the elders who are kind of most at risk for the coronavirus right now lived through um, you know the tail end of, of of this era like I mean they, that they can sort of remember um, these things happening or being taken off to boarding schools and, um, you know, stripped of, you know, language or, you know, culture or connections to family or resettled in cities and things like that. And so, like, I mean, the that sense of, like, they're trying to kill us, I mean, that, that sort of, it, I don't know if it's, like, a conspiracy theory or a paranoia, but, like, you know, the virus is somehow, like, designed as a, a another way of cultural genocide. I mean, you do hear that a lot. Um, I I heard that multiple times from people um, when I was up at Standing Rock. Um, You know, I I personally don't believe that, but, like, when you look at the fatality rates and when you see that, you know, Native Americans have died at almost twice the rate of uh, white people in this country, you can understand it. Um, And and one of the challenges is that it's created a lot of distress when it comes to vaccinations. Yeah. Um, and you, I, I heard at Standing Rock and, and in other discussions with, with um, folks, uh, you know, Navajo or, you know, Newt or, or um, Northern Cheyenne or um, Lakota, this kind of tension over whether or not to get the vaccine. Um, you know, some people were really wary of the vaccinations because they thought that, like, not enough um, Native people had been included in the trials, like, for for the Pfizer vaccine or Moderna, and so there was a sense of, like, you know, you know, is this sort of, like, legacy of health inequity kind of repeating itself? Um, some people said that, like, they thought they could just deal with the virus through means of uh, traditional, um, you know, medicine, and, um, and they thought that that would be sufficient, um, you know, to, to protect them. I mean, that's obviously um, a, a risky proposition. And then there were these families where there were, um, there were elders who were sort of being convinced by their kids to um, get the vaccinations despite their, like, really deep misgivings. Um, I actually, I talked to one woman. Can I tell you uh, like a quick story? Please do. Okay. So there was this woman, uh, at Standing Rock by the name of, uh, Reva Gates. Um, she's 75 years old. She had open heart surgery a couple months ago. Um, she has diabetes and she lives, um, she and her husband, uh, live with, I think five grandkids, um, in Cannonball, North Dakota. And so I met her, um, sort of very remotely, she was in her minivan. She had driven, um, her granddaughter drove her uh, to meet me and uh, Riva sat in the minivan and I kind of yelled questions at her um, from outside. And um, and at the time, they were both, the granddaughter and Riva were really leery of the vaccine. Um, and Riva was saying, I don't want to be a guinea pig for this. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'm going to get it. and and this is all incredibly poignant because Reva's 75 year old sister-in-law was one of the first people at Standing Rock to, to die of this disease. Um, and, you know, Reva has basically been isolated in her home since this thing started. She's been outside of her house for outside of her property four times. Um, the fourth was when she and I talked. And so, you know, I, I left her and, um, i wrote the story up and a couple weeks went by and i called her up to see just how she was doing and and, you know whether anything had changed and it turned out that like two days before she had actually gotten her first shot of the vaccine Hmm. um she she had decided that you know she had had a lot of conversations with her with her family and she had decided that you know, despite all of her misgivings, she wanted to, you know, be able to see them and go out and, and, um, and live a life. And so, um, yeah, they they drove down to the local uh, Indian Health Service clinic in Standing Rock, and and they got vaccinated. So that was dose number one, and I think she was due to get her second dose right around uh, right around now. So I got to check in with her again. But um, I mean, a lot of family members have been saying, like, please, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, like, do this. So that's that, that's what I'm hearing in terms of like the, the mistrust and, and how it's playing out.
0: Yeah, I've seen research that kind of lines up um, with that story in in terms of, it's important for the government and other, other, you know, prominent voices to, to encourage, um, the adoption of the vaccine, but really voices in your own family or, you know, your community, um, are even more effective. So
1: hopefully there's more people speaking up. There is this interesting, um, study that was done by the, uh, urban Indian health Institute, which is like, I mean, they do some of, you know, the most important work when it comes to health issues and Native communities. Um, and uh, a- Abigail Echo Hawk uh, was sort of like the, the lead behind this. Um, she had been pointing out that there has been really limited um, or almost non-existent research when it comes to uh, Native views on vaccinations. And like a lot of the surveys that you see by like major Media or polling organizations are all they—they they don't really break it down, and they haven't specifically sought out native voices. And so Abigail did, um, and what she found was that, like, when it comes to like motivations for taking the vaccine, people in—I mean, th- there was a lot of you know resistance and and, and wariness in uh, among native communities, but f- in terms of motivations, like, why get vaccinated? Um, surveys for um, non-native communities suggested that one of the best messages is it protects you against this virus. And for native communities, um, one of the most resonant messages was one of collective responsibility and collective mm-hmm. like benefit. Like It protects us. It protects others. It protects this community. And Abigail was saying that, like, that sort of messaging is necessary to like as a means of persuasion like if we need to persuade like maybe 30 or 40 percent of this country to adopt this vaccine we can't just present a one size fits all public health message that you know and expect it to fit in different communities when you know like clearly there's evidence that um an individually minded ethos works better with some people than others. And so like, that's one of the big questions is like, is the government messaging this vaccine in the right way to the right people?
0: And what other steps did you find tribes taking um, when it came to either protecting people from uh, from the virus or trying to protect or at least mitigate this erasure of culture that's resulting from it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was pretty soon after um, the virus first took a foothold um, in this country that that tribes started to you know try to like lock down um in i mean and and with saw uh, with varying degrees of success like you saw um i believe it was uh it was the um was it northern cheyenne in south dakota um who attempted or cheyenne river i'm, I'm blanking on, on which which one it was that they tried to set up a roadblock of the reservation right. um to to try to keep people out and to try to protect themselves um and the governor of South Dakota, uh, Christy Nome, who's a, a big Trump supporter, um, you know, tried to prevent the tribe from doing this. Um, so there have been like some tensions between different levels of government, uh, you know, as, as tribes tried to protect their, their residents. Like Navajo Nation, I think, has been one of the the most kind of interesting um examples and there have just been all sorts of mobilizations uh, to try to get um i mean of course they had curfews and quarantines and lockdowns and everything um but like amidst those things they were trying to get like uh food and water and sanitation and supplies out to elders um in a lot of cases I mean, you know, life um, in certain parts of the Navajo Nation is pretty rural and, and can be really, really difficult. Like, you know, lack of running water. Um, some people don't even have electricity. And so, like, <laughs> I mean, in a pandemic where, like, washing your hands and keeping things clean, you know, as has, like becomes a, a means of survival if you don't have running water. I mean, my God, right? It's, like, a, an incredible risk. And so like uh, volunteers started trucking water out to people, Um, like Navajo uh, women especially um, stepped up in this incredible way to deliver like sanitizer and supplies. Um, And I don't know, these efforts were, they struck me as like on one hand, like an incredible community mobilization, but like it really also underscored incredible disparities um and underinvestment when it comes to you know just basics of of life and hygiene and that so many people i think take for granted um and and i think it i don't know i mean for for so many people you know they they had to travel you know hours to get to a hospital sometimes um like a lot of the the hospital services on reservations were, were small and got overwhelmed quickly. And so, you know, on Standing Rock, for example, people were getting shipped, you know, three hours to, you know, major medical centers, um, if their conditions deteriorated. So, um, I mean, families were spending thousands of dollars on hotel rooms, um, and gas and travel and time away from work just so they could like, you know, be with relatives, um, You know, in the hospital, like 400 miles away from their homes.
0: You know, last year, um, you reported on how the COVID 19 crisis is uh, affecting uh, tribally owned casinos and how that's impacting local economies. How does that play into all of this as well? I mean, it, it is
1: still devastating. I mean tribal funds, um, and, and some of the some of the casinos have reopened, um, sort of minimally, but uh, you know business is still way down. Uh, it affects uh, funds for tribal health services. Um, tribes uh, have been sort of. Getting cares money and and figuring out what they can spend it on and you know what the dollars are going to has been a real complicated process. Um, you know the the money has kind of come in drips and drabs. They've had to fight for it. There have been all sorts of um, battles over actually like getting the money to get provisions. Um, and so I mean that's I mean you know the money part of this pandemic has been. Incredibly difficult for for them as they try to set up health services or you know set up testing or and, and now um, you know roll out vaccines in a big way.
0: You know, I want to end with a, a question for you, just about journalism. Um, and um, obviously, journalism has been uh, under, I'll say, some stress uh, both economically uh, and politically. And I'm just curious how you view view your role as a journalist and how that might have evolved uh, in recent years i
1: i mean i never really thought of myself as as too much more than you know an observer as someone who like whose job is basically to hear people's stories and bear witness and and i mean obviously anytime you're a journalist, you get into, you sometimes get into scuffles, whether it's with like a PR person or uh, a politician who doesn't like a story. Um, There's an inherent tension, right? When you're trying to get information from institutions that don't want to give it out, or they have a particular story or storyline that they want to push. And you're trying to, you know, report something that, that contradicts that. So, I mean, there's always been tensions in, in journalism, but like I mean, really, like the past, you know, four or five years or so since the campaign. I mean, I'm being called an enemy. Of the people or being it, just trying to talk to someone and having to go through um, a whole lot of rigmarole about how, like, oh, I'm a member of the opposition, or I'm I'm the resistance, or I'm the enemy, and this kind of stuff has been, you know, pretty new and and. I mean it's it's been really difficult to you know to convince people, especially a lot of people on the political right of this country, that I don't have some sort of ideological, you know, agenda, or that I'm not some sort of like, you know, secret agent, liberal democrat activist, because I'm not, right? I mean, like, I mean so I mean, the Trump presidency has been obviously, like, really hard. His rhetoric has has trickled down, um, you know, to the street level of reporting, where it is just, like, incredibly difficult to, you know, get people, um, a lot of people on the political right to to talk to you anymore um, or to convince them that you're not going to uh, twist their words or that you don't have an agenda. Um, And, you know, every time... Um, I go out and, and do stories, uh, you know, with just talking to people and meeting people I've I've never met before. Um, I I do get a lot of that, and a lot of people, you know, have like just declined to talk to me um, because they are that suspicious, and you know that's unfortunate because you know as a journalist you just want to hear from everybody um, and as many people as you can, and if we're not hearing from people because they don't even want to engage with us because they are that suspicious of, of what journalism's purpose is in this democracy. Um, I mean, I think everybody suffers. The journalism suffers, uh, readers suffer from not hearing from them. I mean, it, it's really difficult.
0: Well, Jack, thank you for what you do and um, a special thanks for shining some light on uh, these communities who are too often in the dark out in Indian country.
1: Oh, man. I mean, thank you so much for this opportunity and for for spotting the story (laughs) amid all of like the political turmoil and crises. um, It's I, I just feel like it's important to keep telling these
0: stories. Thank you. Thanks again to Jack Healy. You should be able to use the Google to find the pieces that we discussed. Uh, In case you need more data for that, his story on tribal elders ran in The Times on January 12th of 2021. And he contributed to another story about the economic impact on tribes that ran on May 11th, 2020. You can also follow him on Twitter at Jack Healy NYT. Reminder, you can and should follow this podcast by subscribing to it and help others find it by giving us a rating. I look forward to seeing you next time.